And now for something completely different. <laughs> How many of you would rather go to retreat than listen to the preacher? Man, I want to go there. <laughs> My name's Tom. I also am on staff here at Calvary. And uh, it's my privilege to be here and see what God's doing on the Erie campus. I'm normally at the Boulder campus. I'm so thankful for the staff who lead what's happening here and for the members of this church that make the things that are world-changing happen, starting in Erie and really extending throughout the world. I'm so thankful for you and for your part here. If you're new, I hope you'll jump in the flow, take the next step of how you can get involved in what is happening in the congregation and then in our community. <clears throat> yeah, instead of all that jazz, I want to talk to you about the Ten Commandments. <laughs> <clears throat> We're in a study in the book of Exodus, and in the flow of the book of Exodus, God has delivered his people. It's very hard for us to sense today in 2019 in this room what had to be their visceral sensory experience to have seen God do incredible things and to be delivered out of a land, to be on the march through the wilderness, and then to have God set up the terms for their future. of which the Ten Commandments are part of it. There was a study about uh, 12 years ago in the United States, and it was just a little test that you might take. Could you name the Ten Commandments? And more people could name the seven ingredients of a Big Mac than they could name six of the Ten Commandments. To all beef patties. Yeah, see? You know it. <clears throat> okay, so I want to I take you through the Ten Commandments today. But if you're like me in some respect, we think the Ten Commandments are God's constraining of our life. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. And very often we think that the the reason the Ten Commandments were given is because God is kind of like this and saying, don't do that. And if that is your perspective, I want to lead you to the Bible. And I want you to see a God who is very different than a God like this and is rather a God like this. And what he's doing in giving his law to his people is leading them to the good life. Let's open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, and I listened to Thomas' sermon from last week, and I uh, spoke in Boulder as well. And so we were doing some introduction and just a quick review that the law of God emerges from the grace of God and is a reflection of the person of God. And in Exodus chapter 19, the Lord is speaking, saying to Moses, 
And then to all of the house of Jacob, verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is the Lord to Moses just before he gives the Ten Commandments. And you have to understand that what God is doing here makes the Ten Commandments make sense. And so I want you to see three things that God says about himself that is not a picture of God standing with his arms crossed, looking at, with a scowl at you, waiting to get after you if you step out of line. Rather, I want to draw you to see God as he is in his person. And the very first thing he says, jump back with me to this scene. You yourselves know what I have done in, to the Egyptians. You know what I did. What did God do? Anybody? That's right. That's exactly right. What he did is he, I mean, you, you think about the miraculous things that God did in Egypt uh, he did the 10 plagues, which were frightening, terrifying, but absolutely indisputable, a work of God. God was doing that in all of those judgments. God was the one who opened the Red Sea and let Israel pass through. God was the one who closed it back up and defeated the enemy. God was the one who turned the hearts of the Egyptians before the Israelites left to say, here, please take all my gold and precious things. God gave Israel favor in the sight of the Egyptians that they made them rich. That didn't happen because um, they were so influential. It was God working. God was the one who gave them manna, who gave them water in the wilderness. And when God describes himself to Moses in this verse, he said, you know what I did. Now, let me ask you, do you do you think of God as being the almighty, all-powerful, miracle-working God that he is? This is the foundation of the law. This is what God's like. Second thing, you know that I bore you up on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. You know that I was like an eagle that carries its eaglets on its wings, on its back, and carries them along safely and catches them when they fall. I did that because I love you and I'm like a parent who cares for you with sacrifice and I bore you along and I brought you to what Canaan the promised land no what did God bring them to himself because what God's after is a relationship with his people where he loves them they love him and he I brought you to myself so I'm gracious and I'm almighty and the last phrase in this paragraph is, all the earth is mine. And God is saying, I'm, I own it all. I'm over everything. I'm sovereign. I am the almighty one. I am the gracious one. And I am the sovereign one to whom everything rightly belongs and must answer. Now, they had the experience of the last three months of coming out of Egypt and experiencing his deliverance and experiencing his provision. And so when he said, you know what I done? Yes, we saw it. It was just 
three months ago. You know I carried you out there to myself. Yep, we're not in Egypt anymore. And you know that all of the earth is mine. We believe that. It is as if God is saying, this is who I am. And I'm not this God. I'm a gracious God who's delivering you. And that becomes the platform out of which the commands come. Now, secondly, you can look in the same section and see three things that are in God's mind when he thinks about Israel. This is what I want Israel to be. And first is that you, you know that you shall be my treasured possession. I brought you out of the land and you're going to be my treasured possession. Now, you belong to me and I love you and I care so much about you. And you're going to be a kingdom, secondly, of priests. Remember last week, Thomas talked about the priest being a representative between God and people, and Israel was designed by God to represent him in the world so that they would carry out the fulfillment of the covenant God made to Abraham when he called Abraham and said, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and through you all the nations of the world will be, everybody? Exactly. Blessed. God's going to bless the world through his people. And that's what he's saying here. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're going to represent me in the world so all the people will know what kind of a God I am. And you're going to be a holy nation, thirdly. You're going to be a set-apart, distinct nation, and you're going to be set apart by the way you live because you know the God who is almighty and gracious and sovereign. Do you see that? Three things about God, three things about the people of Israel, and then there is this one little phrase in this paragraph that forms the terms of the covenant. Here's what you have to do. This is what I'm like, this is what you're going to be, and here's what's required of you. Everybody in bold? If you will indeed obey my voice. Okay, I just gotta say eight o'clock was stronger than that. Okay, let's say it again. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my... Yeah, you're, we're having a covenant here, which is a, an agreement. I am this kind of God, you will become this kind of people if indeed you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. Now, do you think it's fair for that kind of a God to say to that kind of people he redeemed, here's what my expectation, here are the terms of the covenant. Does God have a right to do that? Okay, proud people say, I don't like you telling me what to do. And God says, no, this is who I am. I love you. I, I, have, I have grace for you. I am the God, sovereign over everything. Here are the terms of the agreement. Can you do that? And could Israel do it? Yes. No, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And it's very similar to ourselves. So what we're looking at here is an Old Testament narrative which does translate to us, hopefully by the end of our time together. Now you go to chapter 20, and the opening verses in chapter 20 have these words. And God spoke all these words, that's actually the, the commands, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So... Again, chapter 20, he's saying, this is who I am, the Lord your God. This is what I've done. I've brought you out of the land of slavery, out of Egypt. You were in bondage. Now I've freed you. So can I ask you a question? Did God give the Ten Commandments 
that if Israel kept them, they would be free? No. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You are free. That's the point. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You have been freed from bondage. Now what are the Ten Commandments? They're the life of a redeemed people. God didn't give the Ten Commandments to make them free. He gave them the Ten Commandments to keep them free. And really in his mind, these commands are given in order that you would experience the good life. And once you start tracking down through the Ten Commandments, you can see that if you break the commandments, your life's going to get bad. The commands are given for your good, for your prosperity, for your blessing. And they're broken down into two parts, the first four and the second six. The first four go like this. Um, You shall have no other gods before me. You have to make a choice. Who will be your God? Will it be the God of your fathers, the God of uh, the Egyptians? Will it be any other God? No, you, you make a choice that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that choice is exclusive, and it eliminates all others. It's not God and something else. And the purpose and the, the, the mission of an Israelite in that day was to fiercely identify and dispatch any other God that rose up in their heart and mind to worship them. So too with us. You shall have no other God before me. The second command is like it. You you shall not make for yourself a carved image, no idols or anything uh, that has the likeness of heaven and earth or beneath it. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. If you make an idol, you, you vest it in some kind of divine power and then you worship it. You shall not do that. You won't even make any image of Yahweh himself because to do so limits God's majesty and his his freedom and his magnitude to some image. You might remember in Acts chapter 17, Paul walked through the city of Athens, and when he came through the city of Athens, there were idols all over the place, all these little statues and stones and carvings, and there was one particular one that said, to an unknown God, and Paul took the opportunity to say, let me describe to you the unknown God, the God you are covering your bases with, that you put that there so that if there is a God you don't know about, you'll be all set as you worship all these gods. The God that you don't know is the God who cannot be uh, conscripted into a stone or to some image. The God you don't know is the God who is all-powerful, all-sovereign, and gracious. And he described it. Idol worship is uh, an insult to the magnitude of God. Fortunately, we're all over idols in 2019. What we learn is that idolatry can be in the heart without a form. Covetousness is idolatry, Paul said. You shall have no other God beside me. You have no idols. Thirdly, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. You won't take his name and make it common. You won't defame it. You won't tie it to an oath that you say but don't intend to keep. You you won't use blasphemous association with the name of God Because I am that I am is the all-sufficient, uncaused, uncreated God who is over all and is worthy of all praise and you don't bring his name down and use it as a curse word. 
Okay, that's, that's God's plan. And you shall keep the Sabbath. Keep it holy. The seventh day shall be set apart to me to recalibrate your life and remind yourself that you're not about your work, you're about God. So to cease is what Sabbath means, to cease. And the precursor to Israel doing it was that God did it in the creation when he created the earth in six days and on the seventh day he rested and then he told his people you shall take a Sabbath it shall be for the Lord and you will reorient your life every seventh day for worship not work and God will be reminded in in your heart and soul that there is one God there are no idols his name is holy and the Sabbath is set apart to revere him Now, the Ten Commandments, all of them are repeated in the New Testament, except the Sabbath one. It's not legislated in the New Testament in the same way that the tone of the other commandments are carried on as the moral life of people who follow God. And that's because the Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus, who became our rest. And afterwards, the church began to celebrate the day of resurrection, not the day of rest, the day of our resurrected Savior, That doesn't mean that Sabbath experiences should not be practiced by people who love God in order to be sure that we're always recalibrating that my life is for God. There's no other God but him. I don't take his name in vain. I have no idolatry in my heart, and I give my life to him. Those first four really represent the first part of the Ten Commandments. So in Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus was preaching, uh, Jesus was tested by someone, a man came up to him to ask him a question. And he said, teacher, what's the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus said to the man who was asking the question, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. I thought the first commandment was you shall have no other God before me. What Jesus is doing is summarizing that the first four commandments in the 10 commandments can be summed up that you love God with all your heart and no rivals compete with that kind of love. That's the heart of the great commandment. And he said all of the law and the prophets keep explaining this, that the greatest commandment is to love God. And I think if you look at the first four Ten Commandments, that's how you love God. No other gods but him. No idolatry. Your heart isn't given over to other things more than you love God. You revere his name, our Father who art in heaven, everybody. Hallowed be your name. Your name's holy. I don't defame it, I don't profane it, um, and, and I keep myself resting in the Lord. That's how you love God. The next verse, 39 and 40, says, uh, a second commandment is like the first and the greatest one, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend everything that's in the law and the prophets. If you could summarize everything from all the prophets and all the law, And even the poetic literature, it would be this. Love God, love others. Love God, first four commandments. Love others, the next six commandments. Let's look at those quickly. Okay, one more thing about the law. So a lot of people think the law is actually God-constraining in our life. But you love to live and drive in Erie and Colorado. Isn't it awesome when you go to work on morning, on a Monday morning, you're driving down the road and the light turns yellow, you slow down and stop. Pretty much, right? 
and people around you do too. It's actually kind of amazing that you can be log jammed at a light two or three lanes deep and your light is red and all these cars are just flying by you in both directions in front of you but everybody just stops and waits there. And then the light changes and they stop and everybody goes. And it's like, order. Now I know, I know that some of us can't tell yellow from red. But by and large, if you've ever been in another country, it, you know, there are other countries where driving is a little freer. And um, subscribe to the law a little less seriously. Uh, I've been around the world and, and driven in places where, you know, if there's room, there's a lane. And you get in it and you go. But here, it's a little bit different. I mean, you drive on a switchback up on a mountain and you're going over the, the, the edge. You can see the edge down there and you're white-knuckling the steering wheel. You don't say, do you? Why did they put guardrails here? <laughs> you, you say, thank God for guardrails. And in a sense, the commands are God's rules and guidelines and guardrails to lead his people into what is the good life. This is for your good always. So, how do you love your neighbor? Well, you start in your home. You shall honor your father and mother, number six. Honor your father and mother because the place that God is building his society for Israel in the Exodus story starts in the home. That where there is home structure, there is honor of children to their parents. And there are parents who help their children do just what we saw this morning, parents saying, I'm going to help my kids grow up to know and love the Lord Jesus. There is the, a family structure where honor helps to create the nation that God is creating. Honor your father and mother. Somebody said this morning after the first service, oh, I wish my kids had been here today. Honor your father and mother. Why? God's building a people who love him. And that's where it begins in the home. Number two, you shall not murder. Any questions? <laughs> That's not good for you. It's not good for others. It's for your good. You don't kill people. Five, six, seven, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is not a way to love your neighbor. It's a way to hate yourself, ruin your life. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. Now all of these are stated in the negative that you don't do this, but it's you don't do this because God is like this and you are his people. And these are the expressions of the divine nature, the moral, pure, um, godly character of God himself and then that he desires in the hearts of his people. This is what God wants for us, for the good life. And we could illustrate any one of these in any kind of a way and say, you know what, if, if I do one of these, it really shows that I don't love my neighbor if I steal his things. I don't love my neighbor if I covet or commit adultery with her husband. I, I don't love 
Love God, love others. And so it makes perfect sense that God's creating the guardrails. This is, this is the life I have for you, nation. Now, we've already admitted that Israel failed again and again. And, you know, these, listing out these commands is kind of convicting because we've all broken them, right? Not all of them, probably. But I remember being a young boy, I grew up in a family with six kids, five boys, and one precious little sister who is a saint for living with the five of us. But five boys, Norm, Joel, Tom, Rob, and being at the breakfast table on our way out to school, my mom would pack lunches, we'd grab our brown paper bag and go off to school. And right before we went out the door, one morning, my mother said to the four of us standing there, do any of you boys know what's been happening to the matches up in the cupboard? Norm said, nope. Joel said, nope. Robbie said, nope. And Tommy said, I think maybe Ricky Brown's been taking them, the neighbor up the street. We went off to school, came home from school. When I got home from school, my mom threw a pair of jeans at me. She said, tell me what's in the pocket of those jeans. I reached in there, <laughs> oh, matches. <laughs> she said, you go wait up in your room till your father gets home. That was a long afternoon. And uh, I was born in the era where um, spanking slash capital punishment was still okay. And I heard my dad coming up the stairs with his shoehorn, which was a lint brush on one end and a shoehorn on the other, and it had a little hook on it that jingled, and I heard him coming up. And he came up, and, you know, we had a little chat, and he said with that, um, well, here's, here's what you did. You dishonored your mother this morning, and you lied, and you stole, and you blamed Ricky Brown, <laughs> and they got that one too. And I, I learned a little bit about the commands there. Um, and I know I'm a lawbreaker, and I can't keep the commands. Now here's the good news for us in 2019. What we read in Galatians chapter two is this. You know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. You don't get saved by keeping the law, but through, everybody, faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one could keep the law perfectly in order to be justified before God because we're all lawbreakers. Even Israel kept failing. No one can be saved by the law. So why the law? In chapter 3, verse 24, Paul says this. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by everybody. Right, so the Ten Commandments were never given for Israel in order that they would be saved, but that they would be the guidelines for a person, a, a people who belonged to him and had been saved by him. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, you're free, now live this way, this is the good life. Here we are in the New Testament 2019, and I could say to you the same thing. If you are in Christ Jesus, you're saved, you're forgiven, even if you've broken all the commands. 
because Christ is a forgiver and the law simply leads you to Christ to say, I can't keep the law. I can't do it. But it leads me to the one who could do it. Who's that? Jesus. And Jesus is the one who died having never broken a law of God. You know that? Jesus never told a lie. He never coveted. He never had an adulterous thought. He never hated anyone to the point of wanting to murder them in his heart. He never stole. He never dishonored his parents. Ah. And he was crucified for every other human being who broke many of the commands. He became our substitute. He became a curse for us in order that we might be forgiven. The law just led us to Christ to say, we can't keep the law, I need Jesus. And we accept Jesus. And what you know then, once you turn to Jesus, is that when he comes in your heart, and you turn to him and say, I can't keep all the laws, and I don't want to become a Christian by trying and trying and trying, I just rest in you, Lord Jesus, please save me by your grace. And he will. And what happens when he does is that he gives you a new heart and he places his Holy Spirit within you. And what happens is there's sort of a new agreement, not an old Mosaic covenant made in stone, but a new covenant made through the blood of Jesus that when you trust Christ, you get a new covenant with God. Prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31, where Jeremiah says there, for this is the covenant of the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. See it? What? I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. It's something internal happens when you turn to Christ, because the, the law feels very external, and I can't do all those things. Jesus, forgive me. He forgives you. He gives you the Holy Spirit, gives you a new heart, and suddenly you, you feel this thing inside of you say, I, I know what's right, and I know what it is to be convicted when I think wrong, and I want to be transformed. One more verse from Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart, and I will put my spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and to keep my rules. The law will be an internal expression of a life under his rule. That's the New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament ancient narrative. Are there any questions? I know you can't keep the law. Me either. Jesus did. He's our Savior. Cling to him. Let the law of God be written in your heart. Remember uh, Psalm 19 from last week? Oh, how I love your law. It's perfect in every way. We love the law, but we don't keep it to get God's favor. We want to keep it because we've been forgiven. All right, let's stand together for prayer. If you'd like to pray with someone before you leave today, there's a prayer team here in front and at the corners of the balcony. And uh, if we haven't met, I'd sure love to meet you. But let's pray together. Father, I thank you for uh, the opportunity to consider the magnitude of this sermon this morning 
that the law comes from your gracious, loving heart for our good. We feel convicted that we are unable to keep it. Our failures are always before us. We rejoice in a Savior who sufficiently, perfectly kept the law and then offered himself as the Savior for lawbreakers like us. We cling to Christ today and pray that the the good moral law of God, the things that bring you pleasure and our lives blessing will be what you help us to continually pursue. Transform our lives for your glory. Now to you who are able to do beyond what we could ask or think, to you be glory in every person's life here and in our community. In the name of Jesus, we all pray together. Amen. See you in the lobby.